Coming up on Tech Nation, a different approach to treating major depressive disorder, as well as PTSD. Moving on from trying and hoping for success with each antidepressant in turn, Alto Neuroscience seeks to directly address each patient's underlying biology. I speak with Dr. Amit Etkin, its founder and CEO. Then, Sir Rory Collins, the principal investigator of the UK Biobank. With data from over half a million people, it has served 30,000 scientists around the world, giving special support to young researchers and scientists in emergent countries. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2018, I was able to speak with NYU management professor Melissa Schilling. She writes about such famously innovative people as Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison, Marie Curie, and Steve Jobs. Each could easily be described as unique, but she settled on the word quirky. You know, it was interesting. Some of the ways in which they are alike each other, they're very different from the rest of us or from what you would think of as a population average. And in some ways, I wrestled with this term quirky because, it, you know, to my mind, a quirk could mean to someone something small, like a little tick or an eccentricity, when really some of these things that they have in common are much bigger and deeper than that. They're more like capacities or, you know, capabilities or belief sets. But uh, but in the end, in the talking with my publisher and working it through, we decided that quirky worked. And it does. <laughs> and some of, some of the things are definitely very quirky. Like there's, there's a couple of details about some innovators that quirky is really the best word for. Well, I think you should share what you're talking about. <laughs> Okay. So, for instance, a lot of the innovators, uh, probably half of the innovators wear the same outfit every single day. And, you know, at first you're inclined to think that's just a weird coincidence or it or it has to do with them being lazy about their thinking. But the more you study it, it's actually an outcome of another trait, which is it's out, outcome of two traits. The first one being that they all have a little bit of social detachment or a social disconnectedness where they don't feel like the rules that apply to other people apply to them. And that means that social rules of getting dressed each day and having a different outfit and sometimes sometimes the social rule of showering didn't apply to them. So if you release that rule and then you add in a second trait, which is that they were keenly focused on an idealistic goal so that they were working all the time and very focused on that goal to the exclusion of almost everything else, then you really easily see how you end up with someone not changing clothes every day or wearing the same thing every day so they don't have to think about it. Um, the quirkiest trait, though, of all, I'd have to say, belongs to Tesla, Nikola Tesla, who was a, a, probably the quirkiest of all the innovators I studied. He was a really strange and fascinating and brilliant person. I think of all everybody I studied, he's the one that I became most fascinated by. Uh, he had a lot of signs of mania. He didn't sleep very much. He slept about two hours a night when he slept at all. He had strong aversions to anything spherical. So if a woman was wearing pearls, he just couldn't even be near her. He tended to divide the cubic root of his food by three on his plate. And if it couldn't be perfectly divisible by the cube root of three, he wouldn't eat it. So he had a lot of obsessive compulsive tendencies. I mean, he was also a lifelong celibate, except for the fact that he had a long-term relationship with a pigeon that he believed to be his soulmate. <laughs> so I, I think that definitely can get filed under the category of quirky. 
to be a breakthrough innovator, you need some very special characteristics. One yeah. is this extreme belief they can overcome obstacles. Right. Psychologists call this trait self-efficacy, and it's kind of a mouthful. And people sometimes confuse it with the more general notion of confidence, but it's not really the same thing. So confidence is supposed to be a general term, and it could be whether you think you're pretty or whether you're good with the opposite sex or whether you're going to be successful at everything you try or lots of different things can go into confidence. But self-efficacy is very specific to task-related activities. So it's this degree to which you believe you can overcome obstacles to achieve your goals. And the interesting thing about it is that someone could look like they're not particularly confident. Like if you met Marie Curie, you might not have come away feeling like she was a very confident person, yet she had incredibly high self-efficacy, and every single innovator in my set had it. And when you have this intense faith that you can overcome any obstacle to achieve your goals, it completely changes the nature of risk because uh, you no longer think of an obstacle as being a signal that you might fail. You just think of an obstacle as being something that you absolutely are going to surmount, and there might even be a bigger dopamine reward after you do surmount it. So it could actually be a little bit exciting to have a challenging problem. NYU professor Melissa Schilling is the author of Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who change the world. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, an unprecedented effort to address major depressive disorder, serious depression, and PTSD. Moving treatment from trial and error to the right treatment for each person. I speak with Dr. Amit Etkin, the founder and CEO of Alto Neuroscience. Then Sir Rory Collins, the principal investigator of the UK Biobank significant medical data on hundreds of thousands of people for over a decade and growing. We'll learn how 30,000 researchers around the world have moved and are moving science forward with this unique resource. TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now... Dr. Amit Etkin. Well, Dr. Etkin, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to our discussion. Well, from the outset of this interview, I want listeners to know that we have some first here. What we're talking about is not just another shot on goal, but a very different approach to major depressive disorder, which you might know as clinical depression, serious depression, as well as PTSD. So what you're hearing will be some significant firsts that you have not heard before. So let's start with major depressive disorder and PTSD. You're studying them together. From the experience of the person who suffers, what's the difference and where are they the same? So with depression, which people just in their day-to-day lives may have a general sense of, with depression, we think about things like not only low mood, 
lack of motivation, but also changes in appetite, changes in attention and sleep, a lot of things moving together. Sometimes those come out of the blue. Sometimes a person has had depression before and gotten better and then relapses. And sometimes that's related to a trauma they experienced. And that's where things start to shade into this commonality between depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Often, I think in popular culture, people associate PTSD with veterans and combat, but actually having a severe trauma, a life-threatening event can lead to feelings of detachment and fear and depression and, and kind of this arousal where you just have to watch your environment the whole time. And quite often comes with all of those things that we associate with clinical depression itself, except in PTSD, it's the trauma that clearly caused this. In depression, a portion of depression is caused by trauma. In fact, people after a trauma, if they develop a psychiatric condition, pretty much equally go on to develop depression or PTSD. And so, so you can think of these things as from a symptom and experience perspective, a spectrum of illness. What we wanted to do in trying to understand these conditions, and even though our primary focus is on depression, is to understand what is the range of people who are out there and seeking help? How does the biology that we are leveraging give us insight on that whole spectrum rather than very narrowly defining the population we're trying to understand? Typically, people who suffer from these symptoms go to their doctors and from these external symptoms or personally perceived symptoms, they're prescribed antidepressants. Sometimes they have to keep switching medicines until they find one that works. And as a Stanford University professor and researcher, and now as founder and CEO of Alto Neuroscience, you think that could be different. How? So that's a great question. And I think we have to start by understanding how big this problem is. So depression is the most disabling condition across all of medicine across the world. You'll see it on average in around 6 or 7% of people as a whole. And the pandemic has only made that worse. So when you look at how big the problem is, and now you look at the tools we have to leverage, there's a few really critical things in there. So we do have a lot of drugs, but a lot of the drugs are very similar. And exactly as you said, it's a lot of guesswork because we don't know what will work for each person. What we don't have any of is any tests that tell us about any aspect of the biology of the patient that could be used to guide what it is that's really driving their depression, or for that matter, any psychiatric disorder, and how do I use that information to prescribe a drug that will actually work for them, will work faster, and will work better. And that's the frustration the patients experience as a psychiatrist and a clinician I experience in trying to treat the uh, patients is that it's just guesswork. And the worst part about that guesswork is that it takes months to find out if the drug worked for them. And if it didn't, you start all over again with a brand new drug. And that has consequences. You know, you have a high rate of suicide with depression. There's all the impact on the person, on their family, on their work, on society, the cost of mental illness in general is really, really high. It's the biggest driver of cost for insurance in the United States, for example. And so it's a bit shocking when you look at where the state of medicine is in, you know, now 
2022-2023 where we should be so sophisticated and yet we're still treating our patients much like we did in the 1980s. Now, how do we measure depression? I mean, we're looking for measures, but how do you measure it? We don't have a depression uh, organ that we can just, you know, take a blood test and see how it's operating. Exactly right. But we do know a few things. So we know that that subjective experience of depression is important. We never want to diminish that. That's critical to how a person experiences themselves and what drives their dysfunction as they try to live their lives. But we also know that the brain in generating these feelings and driving psychiatric disease has attributes that you can measure that link to our concept of what depression is. For example, when you talk about motivation, when you talk about appetite, when you talk about sleep, all of these things can be grounded in measures. So we use behavioral tests, for example, of, of cognition, of attention and decision-making and memory. We use other tests of emotional uh, biases and how you deal with a reward and how much motivation that gives you in driving your activity. We measure your sleep and your circadian rhythms using a wearable device like tens or hundreds of millions of people have just as they walk around every day, it's generating information. And we also measure how their brain functions directly. And we do that with a tool called EEG or electroencephalography, which is known as brainwave recordings more commonly. And that tells us about how active or interconnected different parts of the brain are. So we can use all of the neuroscience that we've been doing a lot of research on when I was a professor at Stanford, had a big lab doing this, and the field as a whole doing this for years, and leverage that information about how people's brains work in different parts and different functions in those brains against what it is in that clinical syndrome and how it's experienced by the patient. You put all that data together and you start to see the person. You're not just saying, well, try this drug people must break down into various subgroups. It's not a fishing expedition anymore. There turns out to be a lot that we know. And actually, that's something we capitalize on. There's a lot that we know that we can measure that's reliable. So if you take the test now, it'll yield the same result as if you take it three months from now. So it's meaningful, it's reliable, that can characterize people. And it's important in all of this to understand that a lot of these things we talked, for example, about about attention and, and cognition and about appetite and, and sleep and these sorts of things, it turns out people can't introspect and give you accurate information on. I mean, trivially, let's think about, could you tell me what your sleep stages were like and what different parts of your sleep architecture was if you're asleep? Well, obviously, that's going to be hard to report on. But even something like cognition, the way you deploy your attention and you can, we can turn things on and turn things off and avoid distraction, remember things, uh, you know, deploying memory, uh, understanding how to make decisions in a better, more balanced way. It seems like you ought to be able to report on these things, but it turns out when you actually test these things using objective measures, computerized tests, EEGs and the like, that you get information that the person simply can't tell you because that information is just not really accessible to them. It's by putting that 
together with the drugs that we're developing that I think the really exciting steps are taken. To be clear, our history in psychiatry is developing drug after drug with no idea of who we're giving it to and literally throwing spaghetti against the wall and hoping something sticks. And the vast majority of the time, 94% of the time, it fails. On the other hand, we have all these tests, but a test by itself, well, it can tell you something, but it, tell, it doesn't tell you what you're going to need to do about that. So as a physician, that's really not all that useful to me. It's by combining a drug with a test, where the test is for whether you'll respond to the drug. That is how I think we're making progress in understanding the disease and even more importantly, in treating the disease. I have to say that frequently when I speak with people who are developing drugs, they'll say, we have a test, which is great, which is great. You don't just have a test. I'm looking at this data, such disparate data, you know, sleeping and cognition and, and everything else. It's like, you've got a lot of data here. How do you possibly put that together for an individual? And how do you possibly put that together looking at all the data you have for everyone which is bound to tell you something else in addition. That's right. So it's not just, of course, a little bit of data that you gather on a person. It's how that comes into the context of a lot of data that we gathered on a lot of people and understand things like, what does that mean for how they respond to an existing treatment? What does that mean for the diagnosis of one diagnosis versus another or their risk of developing something over time? It's in that context that we learn a lot. And what we've learned and this gets reinforced in how we develop our drugs, is that there are certain areas that you can quantify readily. So cognition is a, is a really good one, or sleep and, and circadian rhythms is another, and, and emotional processing, things that are negative and sort of in, related to a state of high anxiety or things that ought to be motivating but aren't sufficiently that are related to lack of pleasure or anhedonia. All of these things can define dimensions of function and dysfunction in people's brains that characterize smaller groups of people within this really big, broad diagnosis of depression that tells us something meaningful about them. What is going on in their brain that is completely different from somebody with the same symptoms, but a different brain or behavioral or, or sleep profile. And we use that information about how to characterize these small groups to then find which drugs best speak to that area of dysfunction and then develop those drugs in those smaller groups. To be clear, our goal is not to develop a drug for all of depression. We think that there are many different depressions and that relates to different biology. That biology can be measured and scaled so we can do this in a clinically feasible large scale way and that biology should line up with a treatment that addresses what's going on in a much more effective manner. Now, Alto has 11 drugs in the pipeline. We can't possibly get to them all. I do want to talk about your most advanced drug known as Alto 100 because you've gotten data, phase 2A data, your first phase 2 study for people suffering from major depressive disorder and or PTSD. First, tell us about the study and tell us what you found. So when we set up this study, 
It was to try to understand whether this drug, Alta 100, which increases brain plasticity, the ability of the brain to be flexible and take in new information, works better for those people where we thought plasticity was low, and that is people with poor cognition and low mood. And so we set up a study with several hundred people where we could analyze the data as we go, where everybody's getting the drug. And so the question is, does it work better for people with worse cognition relative to better cognition? And can we find that in such a way that gives us a lot of confidence, we can replicate that over and over so that we know now when we go to test the drug against placebo, that we have an idea of the people for whom it's good for that. That's a very different approach to the usual approach when you're testing drugs, which is just give it to everybody. And to be frank, hope that it works without any real idea of why it would work and for whom it might work before you ever do this test. You could get this positive response and say, good enough, we're going to throw it into the mix with all the others, and they can try this on everybody as well. It's like, no, that's not what you're doing here, which is another first. Exactly. So the the use of an objective test, we talked about the lack of objective tests in psychiatry, the use of an objective test to tell you who responds better and who doesn't, that's really something that's been missing in the field of psychiatry and is the centerpiece for our approach. There is no drug in our mind that doesn't have a test. And likewise, there is no test without a drug. These two things have to go together. And this is really the first study finding that kind of an objective test, one that could be scaled to millions of people relatively easily, actually, to identify who it is. And it turns out in a way that you can't just ask them, hey, how's your cognition? You have to do that test. Now, you did mention placebo. I just want to go down the science just a little more. You've determined that with low cognition people suffering from depression, that they responded much better. My notes here say 80% response. And uh, we're talking about we know the measures you're taking. Let's stick with the science here. On this particular drug, Alto 100, and this drug alone, what do you study next now that you see that? There's a couple of interesting directions that this is going to go. So the first one that's happening now is a randomized trial where we're giving the drug to people or placebo and trying to see if, in fact, there is a bigger response in poor cognition. And we're including both people with and without poor cognition. And so that way we can really compare and contrast them. But the other opportunity that this drug and the the tests give you is something that has not happened in psychiatry before, which is now you have the biology of the person that you can measure, you have the action of the drug, and it's not just in depression that we see poor cognition, we see it across the board in a lot of other disorders, including those that might be completely separate. I mean, schizophrenia, you may not think of as overlapping with depression, but the level of cognitive impairment in those poor cognition depressed patients is actually similar to what we see in schizophrenia, where we think cognitive impairment is actually a big part of the clinical picture. And so having a test with a drug and that leading to a better response starts to open up the aperture on what's possible in psychiatry and and allows us to go a lot faster in developing and deploying drugs than you could if you just randomly threw it against different populations. 
Now, I'm just going to, even though you have 11 drugs, I'm going to just ask you quickly about another one that you have, uh, a different drug, Alto 300. Um, and it's currently in a study, and we'll see some results in the late spring, early summer. And there's a phase two study. Um, how is that study different? How is that drug different? So the study as a whole is similar in that we're studying depression and we're trying to understand for whom is that the right drug. But the drug works in a different way. It works on circadian rhythms and it works on sleep. And so the expectation is that the signal, the test that will predict who best responds to that drug is different from Alto 100. And you can then imagine, well, if that's the case, there's an even more exciting outcome at the end of this, because if you can now advance two drugs at roughly the same time that work in new and distinct ways for different populations, each with their own tests, it maybe doesn't overlap at all or only partially overlaps, you can now much more effectively address a much larger segment of the depressed population by giving them a test with a line drug and having multiple options, multiple tests, multiple drugs that all should work better. That's a pretty exciting future. I mean, for me as a, as a psychiatrist and as a neuroscientist, it's really the coming together of these two aspects of my own experience and training to really see clinical change by understanding the brain and, and finally connecting these dots in terms of how understanding the brain leads to actually better treatments in the near term. Now, I do want to say, you know, we're, we're extremely grateful for all the antidepressants out there today. In fact, we may be able to develop tests for them in the future to see where, where do they work, take the guesswork out of them. I guess the, the mantra here is it's a question of matching the right person with the right drug and not just for depression. That's right. So, you know, we've talked about it from the lens of psychiatry, where this is a first. But there's other areas of medicine that actually teach us that this is the right path to go down because they've been going down this path for years. So one example for that is a drug called Keytruda, which is a, a drug to treat cancer and, and actually many different kinds of cancer. And that drug was about to be shelved in much the way that a lot of psychiatric drugs are shelved, which is they tried, they tried it on a very broad population and it really didn't work. And so they said, well, you know what? I don't think this really has a future. But then through additional research, people realized actually you can identify a small group of patients for whom it works extraordinarily well. You know, we talked about the 80% response in that uh, subgroup within the Alta 100 study, similar concept. And it turns out when you grab onto that test and that insight, you can now start deploying the drug, in that case, Keytruda, but we've seen it in other drugs as well, much more effectively across a variety of different tumors, just like we think of a variety of different psychiatric disorders as benefiting from a drug that gets at a mechanism that you could test for. So that really bright future that's already being realized in cancer therapeutics, that's where we want to go soon in psychiatry by doing it differently and, and really taking a page out of areas like oncology. I understand that many people with depression, they don't want to talk about it. They don't even want to talk about the fact that maybe taking antidepressants. There are also other people who don't want to talk about it so much. They're not going to seek treatment. There's almost a stigma to it today. 
There's a stigma in a couple of different and really important ways in psychiatry. I'm speaking with Dr. Amit Etkin, the founder and CEO of Alto Neuroscience. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and other podcast outlets. Biotech-related interviews are also individually podcast. Click through on technation.com or directly at biotechnation.com, or subscribe separately through your favorite podcaster. In the second half of our show, Sir Rory Collins, the principal investigator of the UK Biobank. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Amit Etkin, the founder and CEO of Alto Neuroscience. So it turns out that half of depressed patients aren't even in care. So we talked about six or seven percent of people have depression at any given time. Only half of them are actually getting treatment, which means the other half are suffering, and and that can lead to a range of problems. And obviously, suicide is a really big one. As a public health issue, it's critical that we find a way to bring those other people into treatment as well as treat them more effectively. One of the things that I think is holding back psychiatry is what we started to talk about at the beginning, that it feels like you're just throwing random things at a patient. You don't really know what works and that gets everybody frustrated. And actually oftentimes, even the people who seek treatment might drop out of treatment. I think that there is a an interesting potential here for this approach of pairing a test with a drug and that we can talk about that biology in objective terms that takes away stigma from having depression or any psychiatric disorder. It's not just quote unquote in your head. It's something we can measure. And by measuring it, we can treat, treat you better so that the ability to actually deliver on a relief of suffering becomes better. And the two of these things interplay. Mental illness is in a really unique place in terms of medicine and, and in terms of our experience in, as people. Most people with diabetes don't talk about coming off their insulin. When they think about their diabetes, they think about it as a biological state that can be diagnosed and for which there is a treatment. 
And yet a lot of people, and this is part of the stigma and depression, want to come off their medication because that understanding is not really there. So bringing a test to tell us, to tell the patient, to tell the provider, here's what's going on and here's what you could do about it in a new and more effective way, that has to decrease stigma. That has to bring more people into treatment. And I think if we can bend the curve in terms of suicide rates, in terms of the societal impact of depression, we'd have done a lot of good. Well, needless to say, while your your drugs are on their way to being approved at some point, you're going to get it right somehow. If you get a drug from Alto Neuroscience, you got to take a test. That's right. There is no escaping it. We've just simply got to know what we're doing to do it better. Well, Dr. Edkin, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you come back to see us again. It was my pleasure. Dr. Amit Etkin is the founder and CEO of Alto Neuroscience. More information is available on the web at altoneuroscience.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. The frontiers of science can only be driven by data, while the continual emergence of new technology expands what data can be collected and therefore analyzed. When it comes to understanding the human condition, both anticipating how disease develops and diagnosing and treating medical conditions, what is essential is collecting data from a broad spectrum of humanity over time and continuing to tend that mission as technology and science develops. Also key is inviting analysis, not for just a few, but for the great global body of scientists pushing out the frontiers of science for the betterment of all. That, in just a few words, is the concept and mission of the UK Biobank. Today, I speak with Sir Rory Collins. Dr. Collins is the UK Biobank's principal investigator and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Oxford. Well, Dr. Collins, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Maura. We'll just start with some first principles here. Many people don't know about the UK Biobank. In fact, many people don't know exactly what a biobank is. What is a biobank and what's the UK Biobank? Well, UK Biobank is an act of altruism by half a million people across Britain uh, and uh, an act of vision, really, by the UK funders of research. Back at the beginning of the century, the Medical Research Council, our equivalent of the National Institute of Health, and the Wellcome Trust charity decided that they wanted to set up a very large, what we call a prospective cohort. That is, they were going to ask uh, half a million people from around the UK to answer lots of questions about their lifestyle and the way in which they live, the environments in which they live, to have measurements done on them, things like height and weight and blood pressure and their lung function, and biological samples collected, so samples of blood uh, and urine, and to agree to allow them to be followed through their health records in our national uh, health service. So everybody in Britain uh, has free point of care through the National Health Service, and all of the data about their health is recorded in those systems. And these half million uh, men and women aged 40 to 69 at baseline agreed to us following their health through those systems so that we could look to see what is it in their questions, 
what is it in those physical measurements and what is it in their biological samples that lead to one person developing a particular disease and another person not. Well, Sorori, your English is excellent, as one would expect. I'm not sure everyone knows what the word altruism means. Altruism is a generosity of spirit. Um, so these half million people have agreed to answer lots of questions, um, allow us to make lots of measurements and collect their biological samples, their blood and their urine, and to have access to all of their health records going back in time before they joined the study through the National Health Service records and forward in time as they develop disease in the long term. They're not getting any benefit from that. They're not getting feedback of any of their individual results. What they're doing is creating a resource that researchers from around the world can use to study many different diseases and understand the causes of those diseases and ways to prevent them and treat them. Now, it's a biobank. Does that mean that you keep the biological samples? I mean, at what point does it become digital? Because that's what we work with today. Yes. So obviously the questions we ask and the physical measurements we make are, are, are various uh, data points. What we're doing now is with the biological samples, the blood and the urine we, that we stored uh, in big automated uh, freezer facility, is pulling out those samples and turning the samples into data. So people will be familiar with the idea of measuring your blood cholesterol level or blood glucose level. So we've measured lots of biochemical measures like cholesterol and glucose, but we've gone on. We've now done genotyping of all half million people. Genotyping means measuring um, genetic variation across the whole of the genome. So you have about uh, 3 billion markers across your genome. Uh, and genotyping, you probably measure about a million of them. Uh, but because you inherit your genetic material in kind of lumps, if you measure a variant at one point, you can actually estimate what the variants are near to it. And that can allow you to look at associations with part of the genome with uh, diseases, but also with risk factors such as um, obesity or blood pressure or blood cholesterol. Now, is everyone in the UK, uh, are they served by the National Health Service? And, and what are the demographics of, of the people that are part of this study? Everybody in the UK um, has access to the National Health Service. And almost all of healthcare that's provided in the UK is through this public service. I mean, private healthcare is available but the vast majority of health, and particularly uh, serious health outcomes, uh, are picked up through the National Health Service and through the National Health Service record systems. So that allows us to follow all of the participants in UK through these record systems to find out whether they die and what they die of, to find out about cancers and what kind of cancer they have, and also all of their uh, hospitalizations for various conditions. And increasingly, we're able to link into their primary care uh, records, uh, which go into even greater detail about what investigations they've had, what drugs they get. And then one can go one step further because there are then many disease-specific uh, uh, data sets that we can look at, imaging for someone who's had a stroke, um, sequence data for someone who's had cancer, so that we can get very, very precise 
information about many different health outcomes and combine that with the very detailed information that we have about the participants and their lifestyles, their genetics, their environment, to really uh, hone down on what it is that causes a particular disease and how we might be able to prevent it. And what are the demographics? So the participants were aged 40 to 69 uh, when they joined the study from across England, Scotland and Wales, um, men and women, about 50% each. Uh, and then we located our recruitment centers in places that helped us to increase the diversity of the participants who joined the study. So people from urban and rural areas, people from different socioeconomic uh, strata, and also uh, to recruit people from ethnic minority groups um, in accordance with the proportion in the UK population. Um, so they are minorities, they're smaller numbers, uh, but still really quite large numbers of people from very different uh, backgrounds that we're able to study within the UK Biobank cohort. I don't want people to get the idea that, well, that's it. That's what you do. You just keep collecting this data. There are many different biobank initiatives, and I see one that has a goal of 100,000 participants to have their brains, hearts, and abdomens, which I, I, I'm guessing are many of their vital organs, imaged with MRI scan. Tell us about that. So among the half million participants in UK Biobank, what we're doing is trying to get as much information about as many of them as possible. So we've done biochemical uh, analyses, looking at things like cholesterol and blood glucose. We've done hematological assays, so looking at new, uh, people's hemoglobin levels, uh, looking at their, their white cells and their red cells and things like that. We've genotyped everybody, which means measuring about a million of the three billion markers across the genome. But we've then gone on to uh, analyze uh, the exomes within the genome. So this is the 2% or so of the genome that actually is um, directly producing proteins that then are relevant to the development of particular health conditions. And finally, we've done sequencing of the whole cohort. So all 3 billion markers across all half million people in UK Biobank have been measured um, with funding from the UK government, from charity, uh, and from industry. Why are we doing that? Because the more data we have, the more researchers can understand the causes of many different conditions, because all of this information about the participants is then linked to their health outcomes. And these data in UK Biobank are being made available to researchers around the world for any kind of research that's in the public interest. And there are now some 30,000 researchers using the data some 10,000 of whom are in the U.S. Now, you are in the midst of recruiting uh, the 100,000 participants to have their brains, hearts, and abdomens uh, scanned. Uh, and I understand you were the 60,000th participant. Now, tell us about what that was like. What did you go through? Well, we were very much aware that we had very detailed information from the questions to participants. And, of course, having... Uh, blood and urine samples, we can do very, very detailed uh, analyses of those samples, such as genetic analyses, analyses of proteins and things like that. But the physical measurements we made were, were relatively uh, crude. So how heavy are you? Um, uh, what's your height? Uh, 
So what we wanted to do for at least a large percentage of the UK Biobank cohort was to get very much more detailed information about people's measurements, if you like. So 100,000 of the participants are undergoing a special imaging protocol. They come back and spend five hours um, in one of our four UK Biobank imaging centers. They do the whole of the baseline assessment again, the questions, the physical measurements, the, the blood and urine collection. But then they spend time in magnetic resonance imaging of their brain for about half an hour, of their heart and their body for about half an hour. Uh, we use low power x-ray to look at their bones and joints, um, and then carotid ultrasound, which allows us to look at uh, their arteries in their neck uh, to see whether there's evidence of flaring up of the arteries. So it's incredibly detailed physical characterization of the participants. And uh, I went through that uh, a couple of weeks ago um, as a participant in UK Biobank. Uh, and I was incredibly impressed by the team doing it. It was so well managed um, uh, and actually very interesting. The five hours just flashed by uh, during this process. But these data, these imaging data, like the biological samples, are also being turned into data points. So uh, the images are being provided to kind of engineers, um, digital scientists, uh, data scientists, and they turn the images uh, into data points in the same way that, say, a, um, a laboratory scientist turns the blood into data points. And then that data, thousands of measurements about the brain or about the heart, are made available to researchers to understand are there things that we measured back in 2006, 2010, when the participants joined, that predict differences in the brain or heart or body images? And also then, are those measurements in the brain and heart and body associated with subsequent disease? The body image is really interesting. So you can have somebody with the same body mass index, essentially the um, shape based on their height and weight, but have very, very different uh, magnetic resonance images of them, showing very different uh, fat distribution. It might be superficial under their skin, or it may be uh, associated with their body organs. Uh, and you can only pick that up with the magnetic resonance. And that's likely to be very differently associated with disease. It seems to me that this is unprecedented. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the biggest imaging studies in the past were a few thousand people. The idea of doing 100,000 people being imaged is, yeah, absolutely unprecedented, but so is half a million people being sequenced. You have to remember that 20 years ago, the first person was sequenced. Now we've sequenced half a million people, uh, and all these data are being made available to researchers around the world. And they're making extraordinary discoveries because they have the combination of large-scale exquisite detail, and now, of course, nearly 15 years of follow-up of people's health outcomes. So there are large numbers of individuals who've developed various conditions uh, so that one can really understand what's the cause of those conditions and therefore find ways in which to prevent and treat them. Now, I see that 30,000 researchers have actually accessed this data bank, this biobank, and uh, that they've done work with it. Who are these scientists, and how do they get access? So they access de-identified 
data. So they don't know who anybody is in, in the study. And um, they, they have to show that they are a bona fide researcher and that their institution agrees to uh, comply with the rules of engagement, that um, uh, to look after the data and to use it for health-related research in the public interest. The researchers then provided with access to these data to do their research. And really the only requirement um, in that respect is that they put their findings into the public domain. They publish them in medical journals uh, or they make them public in some other way so that they, they benefit medical science. And there have been some really interesting findings that have come out. I think increasingly what we'll see is new targets for treatments and the work with exome sequencing, which focuses on the part of the, uh, the genome that produces proteins, has already found um, some new targets uh, for, for conditions, for example, um, anti-obesity uh, treatments, which are now uh, starting to be developed. But I think uh, perhaps the most striking observation in my, my mind is the finding that if you combine dozens or hundreds of genetic variants across the whole genome, each of which has a small effect on disease, um, but if you combine many of them, then you can identify a few percent, maybe three to five percent of the population that have a risk of that particular condition equivalent to somebody with a single gene disorder, the kind of disorders like um, BRCA1 and BRCA2 that many listeners will be used to hearing about with respect to breast cancer. Now, that's about 10 times less common. So the idea that this genotyping, where you measure variants across the genome, can identify 10 times as many people with equivalent risk of breast cancer, but also identify uh, 10 times as many people with equivalent risk to heart disease as someone with so-called familial hypercholesterolemia. And it's been shown that um, you can identify people in the top few percent of about 16 conditions in about a quarter of the population. So that means that this very simple test, this genotyping test, which probably costs about $10, can identify a lot of people who are at high risk of different conditions. And you can imagine how that could get rolled out into healthcare systems. For example, a breast cancer screening is typically offered to women when they get to a certain age. Well, if we could find 5% who were at particularly high risk, one could offer breast cancer screening to them at a younger age. And the same would be true, say, colorectal cancer or pr prostate cancer screening. Um, and then from the cardiovascular perspective, I, I do cardiovascular uh, epidemiology and clinical trials, so I'm particularly interested in this. The idea that um, we give cholesterol-lowering therapy to people largely when they get to a particular age, um, uh, if you could identify 5% of people who are age 30 were at very high risk of heart disease, then again, you could offer them uh, protection against getting heart disease um, when they get older. The data are available to uh, researchers around the world um, on the basis of just the cost of processing their application to um, access the data and providing the data to them. Uh, we've now put all of the data onto a cloud-based uh, research analysis platform that's hosted in Britain by the Amazon Web Services. Uh, and um, 
that platform that has been developed for us by uh, an American company called DA Nexus allows researchers to go to the data rather than us having to provide data to them. And that really democratizes further access because the data are very big now. Um, and therefore, to, to have the data come to you means you have to have a big computer and lots of uh, analytic power on your computer. Whereas you can now come to our research analysis platform um, and have all the compute power you need for your project without having to invest in large computers. So it makes it even more uh, accessible to researchers around the world. And indeed, um, we have um, free compute from Amazon for researchers from low and middle income countries and for all early career researchers, again, to facilitate access uh, to the data. Well, I see that in 2021 alone, there were 1,700 publications in such journals as Nature, Science, and many others. So obviously, there's a tremendous amount of output that goes right into the scientific community. Absolutely. Um, the success of UK Biobank uh, is down to the research community around the world using the data in extraordinarily imaginative ways. And what we're seeing is an increasing range of researchers from around the world uh, using the data. So one of the problems, of course, with health data is getting access to it. Well, for the first time, really, a very large, very detailed um, health research database is available to researchers. And what we're trying to do is encourage you know, really clever scientists out there, perhaps not the ones who are most used to using health data, to come and use it. Um, we really want to see the people who do fantastically interesting things with astronomical data or physics data, uh, other data scientists who may be not used to working in the biological field, coming and solving major health problems by accessing these data. They're now readily available at scale and in depth, which is unprecedented. Well, I would imagine that once COVID appeared on the scene, that the UK Biobank sprung into action. What did you do? Well, one of the things we had to do, of course, was stop our imaging study um, because we couldn't invite uh, healthy individuals to come in to the imaging centers. So we thought, well, what are we going to do with all our imaging staff and with our imaging centers? And because we had already imaged 50,000 of the participants, we decided, with the support of the Medical Research Council and the Wellcome Trust, to swivel towards studying covid and so we invited back a thousand of the previously imaged participants who had been infected and a thousand of the previously imaged individuals who had not been infected and we re-imaged them. So we created a unique data source where we have a thousand people with pre and post infection imaging and a thousand match controls. Uh, there is no such data available anywhere else in the world. And then we've made those data available to everybody. And the value of that is that you can look at the effect of infection on change because you have a pre-infection measurement. Uh, and, and that uh, is being used in increasingly. We also made the data available um, to researchers all around the world to look at um, what were the determinants of a bad outcome with infection. Uh, and there were about 200 publications uh, on UK Biobank related to COVID 
identifying some of the, the major determinants of a bad outcome, some related to ethnicity, um, to body shape, um, uh, to other underlying conditions in those individuals. And again, by making those data readily available, rapidly identifying um, important uh, determinants of a bad outcome, and the imaging study helping us to identify what the infection does um, to people in terms of their brain function, uh, their heart function, uh, etc. So, Dr. Collins, uh, where does the UK Biobank go from here? Are there plans? Absolutely. The next phase of UK Biobank will be about studying other aspects of these blood samples, the proteins, the metabolites, the changes that occur in response to exposures to your environment, to your, your genes themselves, so-called epigenetics. All of these things will help us to understand how it is that risk factors, be they genetic, lifestyle, or environment, lead to disease, to understand the pathways and the mechanisms, uh, and therefore really understand better how to prevent and treat those conditions. And I think that will be the next phase of UK Biobank, uh, we'd like to bring back all of the UK Biobank participants so that we can get measurements in all of them, and therefore we can look at change in risk factors on disease. So there's plenty more to do to make UK Biobank uh, more valuable for, for researchers. Um, and the great thing is that we have half a million really altruistic, really engaged participants that want to make this resource as good as possible uh, for the benefit of, of humanity. Well, Dr. Collins, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, uh, truly, I hope you will come back and see us again. I'd love to do so. Thank you very much, Maura. My guest today is Sir Rory Collins. Dr. Collins is the principal investigator of the UK Biobank. More information is available on the web at ukbiobank.ac.uk. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.